The year is 1974, and... I'm sorry, Amy, why, why are the drapes open? The movie, Godfather 2! Everybody and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson and I'm Paul Shear and this is the podcast where each week we watch one film from the AFI Top 100 Greatest Films of All Time list, 2007 edition, to see if they are really as good as people say. Do they hold up and how have they influenced the films that we watch today? Amy, did you know that this week we are doing a live show at the Alamo Draft House? I did know that. Did you know what it's going to be on? I think it's going to be about magic. Am I right? Horesto Trenjo, you are correct. Yes, we are bucking the trend, not doing a horror movie-themed show in October. We are doing a magic-themed show, and we are focusing on one specific movie this Thursday night. It is The Prestige. Exactly. And also this Thursday, it is the anniversary of Houdini's last performance. So going to, as we jump back to the 1890s, the decade of The Prestige, talk about the history of movies and magic because they go together a lot and they have a lot to do with my favorite filmmaker, Melies. Ooh, very exciting. So if you're listening to this early Thursday morning, there might still be some tickets left for you here at the Alamo Draft House in L.A. And if you can't make it out to the Alamo Draft House, this may be dropped uh, in a feed sometime soon. Yeah, or you could just saw off half of your body and send the half of your body that can go to Los Angeles. Very Vito Corleone of you. Um, <laughs> You know, Amy, last week we talked about The Godfather, and today we're talking about The Godfather 2, but it was really interesting because in between last week's episode and this week's episode, Francis Ford Coppola has been uh, kind of making a lot of front page news. Sometimes I feel like we're magicians, and we can summon up people that we're talking about to do something, or sometimes die, which is awful. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do agree with you. I was surprised that uh, FFC kind of was uh, a big trending Twitter topic this weekend. And why? Because he also weighed in on Marvel movies. Uh, last week, uh, Martin Scorsese, while I was out doing press for The Irishman, uh, said that Marvel films were not cinema. And this week, Francis Ford Coppola said, when Martin Scorsese says that Marvel pictures are not cinema, he's right. Because we expect to learn something from cinema. We expect to gain something, some enlightenment, some knowledge, some inspiration. I don't know that anyone gets anything out of seeing the same move over and over again. Martin was kind when he said it was not cinema. He didn't say it's despicable, which I just say it is. <laughs> Uh, and in a the popcorn bucket of despicables. I mean, yeah, you know, well, I have to say that, you know, the Twitter universe has boiled that down to saying that Francis Ford Coppola calls Marvel films despicable. This quote in its larger context is, you know, I, I see what he's saying. He feels like it's the same film over and over again, that this is the same kind of tropes, but... You know, but I just saw The Irishman this weekend, yeah. and uh, if we want to talk about same films over and over again and same kind of tropes, I think Scorsese and Coppola have a lot to to confess for as well. Well, look, I, I just don't understand why we're in the business of punching at other films, right? It You can't just say— Oh, I, that's literally my business, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I mean— uh, do I wish that we had the plethora of cinema that it felt like we had when Francis Ford Coppola and Scorsese were coming up? Yeah, absolutely. And do I feel like 
the emphasis on Disney as a whole. Everything Disney does is sucking up all the money from from it. Yes. And in a way, do I feel like there's Disney is setting up the conditions for an art house uprising the way that Scorsese and Coppola came of age when they were sick of all the gigantic big studio films that were happening in the late 60s. So to that, I say, hurry up. I can't wait for whatever comes next because yeah. I am sick of it. And, uh, this, this, I, I can't say despicable. I can't say that people don't get anything out of Marvel movies. You know, I just had to interview Kevin Smith, and he was talking about how much a line from Endgame really resonated with him once he had a heart attack. So who am I to say that he can't find catharsis in Robert Downey Jr. saying that there's nothing more important than time? You know, As for me, the sooner they're over, the better. I don't care. You know, I think that... What I love about this list, the AFI list that we've been talking about, is the variety of films on them. You know, I think that King Kong and Sophie's Choice side by side on a list. King Kong holding Sophie? (laughs) Saying, is my choice to eat her or not? (laughs) I mean, look, do I want to see that sequel? Yeah, I do. (laughs) Where is that original idea? People, come on, stop doing IP. Let's get Meryl Streep and a gorilla together, okay? We've already seen Faye Dunaway done it. play the gorilla. Oh my God, amazing. I would think, you know, I was thinking Andy Serkis could just, you know, take it on. What if Andy Serkis plays Meryl and Meryl plays the gorilla? Now you're talking... But no, it, you know, look, I am also a huge fan of original works. I mean, those are the films that influenced me growing up. You know, Raiders was an original piece of work. It wasn't a sequel. Star Wars and, and Goonies and Ghostbusters and, and The Matrix, all these movies. You know, Quentin Tarantino, all these people influenced me. But I also really love, you know, everything from my youth that were like the Schwarzenegger movies and the Stallone movies. And I love, and I have a very soft spot for the Marvel films. And I, and I believe that the Marvel films are as good as the directors behind them. Like there wouldn't be 23 films if Jon Favreau didn't make a great superhero film, right? The Marvel world was not on fire. Ang Lee's Hulk wasn't like, we're setting up the MCU, you know? And, you know, but when Jon Favreau kind of found the right alchemy of, what the superhero movie could become, it launched. And then you got all these amazing people. And and I'll expand it to even the DC world. You have like Patty Jenkins and James Wan doing Aquaman. Everyone's bringing a very unique style. You know, Taika brought something totally original and different. James Gunn brought something really fun. And, and I think when you lump 23 movies together or you rail at these movies, you're taking away what these artists are doing. Like these directors, and they're very good directors, are getting to make and play in a giant pond and put their individual stamp on something. And I feel like Thor Ragnarok is a Taika movie. It's not a Marvel movie. It is a it is under the Marvel umbrella, but I want to see a great director play in that space. That's why I loved Ryan Johnson doing, um, you know, the second Star Wars film, like The Last Jedi. I thought that was great. It's like he put his stamp on it. I don't want to just see a faceless, nameless director. And I and I just think it it's punching down. It's not even punching down. It's just like punching at a genre. Like how do you just dismiss a genre as a whole that is successful? It's true. I think maybe it's just that if going to the movies is like going to a buffet, I just feel very full of the orange chicken that is superhero movies. That's and I totally also fine. feel very full of the lemon chicken that is uh, Godfather mobster movies. I'm full of both of them. I just want some vegetables. 
And that's the reason why Parasite had one of the most profitable weekends. Yes, this I would past like to weekend. eat more parasites. But that's I mean, exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? There is still life out there. And and you know, we are also the weekend where this is being said, Hustlers crosses a hundred million dollars. I just think uh, that it felt overly critical. And I made a comment on Twitter that I took a lot of heat for. I was like, I wonder if Coppola and Scorsese were as critical of their, you know, Spielberg and Lucas, who basically defined the genre of theme park films. Yeah, I mean, it feels like when you read it at the time, they talked down to them a little bit. They're like, what are you doing that for? Why are you making a movie about a shark? Why are you making a movie about space? And then they're like, oh, good job, buddies. Well, and and everyone's like, well, did you read Easy Riders and Raging Bulls? And and I'm like, and I feel like that book is also a little bit catty and fun. Like, uh, you know, Friedkin called the conversation garbage. Uh, you know, that word of saying despicable or calling something not cinema, those aren't terms that they've said. I've heard Coppola talk about Lucas and go, oh, I wish he would just give up Star Wars. I wish he'd be done with it. And, you know, and then Scorsese wrote this glowing piece about Spielberg and Empire Magazine. It was like, he reinvents cinema every time he makes something. And and I do think they are a little bit easier on their friends. I never, I don't think you would ever hear them say Jurassic Park is a despicable film or Jurassic Park is, you know, not cinema. And hopefully we'll continue on. I don't know if a Marvel movie will be as, you know, influential as Star Wars, but I can only tell that in 10 more years, right? I mean, if you know- You mean in 10 more years from today, we should talk about this? We should. Let's get back on the mics when podcasts (laughs) are downloaded right to your brain. Which of these 4,000 Marvel movies will we pick to put into the AFI Top 100 list? Well, um, let's talk a little bit about The Godfather. Last week we talked about it, and um, we were recording this episode a little bit earlier than we normally do, and there's a couple comments on it. But uh, Karina wrote, Love The Godfather episode. Worth mentioning that the dramatic tension and nuance overshadowed the film's exceptionally well-placed humor. The horse's head transitioned to Vito, leave the gun, grab the cannoli, dark and light, a big part of the film's mastery. You agree with that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I like the way that even in those opening scenes we were talking about, you go from the dark, dark darkness of the office and the deals mm. and the the guilt and the, oh, do me a favor, to the bright sunshine and everybody dancing outside. It's it's very about jarring you with the juxtaposition, and as is the movie we're going to talk about. And then also, um, Ricky So Fake wrote, you know, The Godfather's legacy wasn't just expanding the mafia genre. It also spread the genre of, quote unquote, elevated toxic masculinity. Mm. And Ricky Sofake said, you know, I wonder if The Godfather is why our culture loves Walter White and hates Skyler and loves Don Draper and hates Hannah Horvath. Hmm. I think there's definitely something to be said for that. Absolutely. But like it's we interesting though that lend so much humanity and be yes. like, oh, I want to understand that man. They're why so he's complicated. mean so mean. Oh, but why doesn't that lady support him? She's mean. I don't like her. The only issue I have with this comment from uh, Ricky So Fake is that he said loves Don Draper but hates Hannah. But it like they're not on the same show. Like I like the Walter White Skyler comparison. <laughs> but I would say that you know, where who who kind of uh, avoids that though. And I'm forgetting her name right now, but Elizabeth Moss' character on Mad Men. People loved her character, too. And she, you know, she was not a hated character, even though she did many things that I think were probably on the same level as Skylar. She didn't support Don Draper. She, you know, went off and did had her own opinions and stuff like that. So I, I wonder if how she kind of falls outside of that because her character was, I think, one of the best on Mad Men. I don't know. I'd want to have a theory, but I've never seen an episode of Mad Men. Really? Interesting, Amy. 
We have the same uh, set designer on Black Monday that they did on Mad Men. That's, uh, and I, I love that because our sets are so, so detailed. It's so fun to like literally live in the 80s. Um, okay. So last week, um, we asked you to reveal a secret to us. Uh, tell us something uh, in our ear, uh, you know, because in Godfather 2, a very big part of it is Michael trying to find out this this secret. And uh, here are some of your phone calls. I'm so nervous about this. <laughs> all right. So I just found out recently that one of my best friends cheats on his girlfriend, like, all the time. Wanted to let you know that one of my friends fucked a member of the Avengers who's currently married. A friend of mine in college got drunk one night, and uh, he took a poop behind the dumpster. I have a buddy who um, his girlfriend's cheated on twice so far, and uh, first with a man, the second time with a woman. Yeah, a friend of mine, he lost his virginity to Marilyn Monroe, and then he killed three people. What do you know? I know that my mom had a baby before she married my dad and had us babies. Yeah, I have a friend that I know for a fact tried to make out with his mom. I heard that. One of them is me, okay? <laughs> for how did this get made, listeners? Yes, I kissed my mom to practice what? Frenching during the love boat. I didn't know that that's not something you did to your mom. I was a young child at that How point. young? I was like young. 11? No, God, no, <laughs> 11. I knew about Frenching by then. I was like young. I was like probably like six or seven. Oh my God, that, I, that was I you? just thought that you kissed, wait, wait, you say it like that was you, like it was, was it to you? That was you, Fredo. <laughs> uh, and of course, one of them is just Johnny Russo. I mean, <laughs> so I don't know how many of these secrets are actually true, but uh, thank you for sharing your darkness. Well, thank you for sharing your darkness. Oh my God. <laughs> it's something I can't live down from the, how did this get made universe? People bring it up to me all the time. Uh, and it's not that weird. It's a, a moment. You see it on TV. You see people lip locking all the time. You think that's what you do? I don't know. No. Uh, well. You don't. I mean, look. What do you like? What do you know? You I know mean, what? You were saying. I don't come from a close Italian family. I come oh, from the Wasp family. Gosh. So maybe I just don't know. Maybe I just don't know. I need to go to talk to a priest now. No, um, Godfather Two. Let's get into it. The year is 1974. Heiress Patty Hearst is kidnapped and brainwashed into joining a bank heist. The man on the wire, Philip Petit, evades trespassing charges for tightrope walking between the Twin Towers. Arthur Fry invents the post-it. Cass Elliot, a.k.a. Mama Cass, leaves this mortal plane. Mia Farrow graces the very first People magazine. Popular TV shows are All in the Family, Sanford and Son, Chico and the Man. Hot movies are Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, Benji, and today's film, The Godfather Part 2, which ranks number 32 on both the 2007 and the 1998 AFI Top 100 list. That's interesting. 38, and we talked last week about how The Godfather is actually in the top 10, number... Number 2. Number 2. Number 2. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? <laughs> The Godfather Part 2, it is still directed by Francis Ford Coppola. It is still co-written by him and Mario Puzo. And it picks up about where we left off with Michael Corleone. He's getting his hand kissed in the last shot. We start with him getting his hand kissed again. And from here, Michael Corleone has tried to go somewhat straightish. He's working mm, on the path, working on the path. Sure. Living in Lake, Lake Tahoe, hanging out with a bunch of wasps who don't know how to serve real food. 
still looking for a bigger and bigger score, which he believes he will find in Cuba if he partners with another mafia boss named Hyman Roth, played by famous acting coach Lee Strasberg. Yes. Meanwhile, as all this is going on, as he's fighting with his surviving siblings and his wife, you have Robert De Niro in a parallel timeline playing his father, young Vito Corleone, as he makes his way from Italy to early New York and slowly builds up his powers as a mob boss. There's a lot here. This is a big, big, big story. Yeah, this is But at the same time, it's kind of the same story. Well, you know, I disagree with you on that because I feel like the first film is very much a mafia story. And the second film is very much a, a personal journey. We talked earlier in the episode about this idea of this toxic masculinity. And I think that this movie does a lot more to kind of drill down on who Michael is. And and I think there's something really engaging about this movie. And they're very different while obviously being in the same exact universe. But I think we're really understanding these characters. I feel like it's a incredibly personal journey. And, you know, just if we want to talk about the bookends of the movie, which is him getting his hand kissed. And he looks more attractive and more powerful in this opening shot than he did at the end of The Godfather. Do you agree with that? Like, I feel like there's something about his face You like that the silver cha- swoosh? I don't know. I think there's something that has changed about him. He looks, and I think the movie takes place just a couple of years after, maybe like two or three years after the first film and the timeline of The Godfather. He has matured, and I think this movie does an amazing job of aging him throughout the film. And even though it's passing over a relatively short period of time, the first film passed over 10 years, this movie I think passes, you know, really over about like a year or two, you can see the age on him. There's there's an there's a lot of scenes of him just like kind of walking into rooms and you see his body carrying the weight of being this patriarch. You know, I was not expecting to feel this way when I watched The Godfather 2 right after we had talked about The Godfather 1. But, you know, I I sat down expecting to see what you're describing, you know, again, to kind of revisit this, like, big change in Michael Corleone. And what I kind of felt more is, like, if the first movie is he's some wet cement and then they refashion him really quick into a new form, this movie is just that statue of him just drying and kind of solidifying. And at the end... You see some of the cracks in it, but I felt like I was really just watching the same point to harden. You know, you get the same ideas, like that he has to sacrifice people in his family, that he has to figure out who he can trust and that he can never trust anybody and anybody could be backstabbing him at any time, that he's being pushed away from Kay. Here he's just pushed away a little bit further. And I kind of watched this movie so close to watching The Godfather and thought, for the first time, oh, maybe we don't need it. I I can't even believe it. This movie got me to my core, to my core. Wait, let me, let me tell you what I love about this movie. Cause I hear what you're saying, but I think the big difference in this film to me is Michael hardened the wrong way. He was put in wet cement and he hardened the wrong way. We already knew he was going to harden the wrong way. It's not a happy ending at the end of The Godfather. No, but he could have. We know it's a bad ending. Francis Ford Coppola thought it was a bad ending. And then he just realized a lot of people didn't get that it was was a bad ending, which is why he bothered to make the sequel in the first place. He's like, y'all don't get that was sad. I got to do it again, but louder. But to see how far he goes and to juxtapose it with the way that Vito ran the family. Vito always took care of the family and took care of the friends. And it was always about doing favors. And Michael 
became a business and he lost all that personal relationship. And what I love about the opening of this film is how business-like the communion is versus how familial the wedding is. And I love just watching him think he's doing the right things. I mean, that to me was the thing that resonated to me, this, this man who believes, like, I'm looking out for my family, I'm going legit, and he lost everything that was amazing about his father. Yes, his father was in the mafia and he did these bad things, but he, in an attempt to kind of not be like that, to be legitimate, actually iced out the most important thing in his life. And for him to kill his brother, and I know, obviously it's the biggest joke, right? I knew it was you, Fredo, like you can't escape it. Probably bigger than the Godfather, the horse's head and Fredo dying are huge. But I forgot how much time is spent between him grabbing him by the face and kissing him and saying, I knew it was you, Fredo. And then you have to sit with that and Fredo sits with that and that, oh my God. And then you have this moment where Talia Shire comes in and is like, please don't do this. And and then they reconnect at the at the funeral and you're like, oh, redemption. But I know, I because how can you not? I'm, I live in this culture that he's going to kill him. But you feel like that moment where he still kills him Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, it just like, it just like, it, it took my breath away. It took my breath away. It took my breath away that he had the kids, that he took the kids almost out of spite away from Kay. Like all these things. It's like, I'm trying to hold the family together and he can't, and he's doing everything so wrong. And I think as, as a, I don't know, as a, as a father and, and, and maybe uh, as a man, I look at this and I go like, Oh, beware. This is this is the ghost of Christmas future. Like this is, you know, what's important, what's not important. This the movie is The cat's in the cradle. That that none of that's in the first movie. The only thing in the first movie to me is Michael going like, "Okay, you've been corrupted because some shit happened around you and now you're in this position." But this he is in control and he loses it. I don't know. I mean, in the first movie, he does things like say he's going to be the godfather to Connie's baby, knowing he's going to kill the dad of that. I mean, that's definitely family division. That is definitely something his but dad would not, not have. But it's not blood. It's not blood. It's half his blood. Carlo was beating his sister. You gotta kill him. It's half his blood. His dad would have never. His not half his blood. No, it's not half his blood. Carlo is just some fucking dude that uh, Jimmy Conn brought on some doofus that yeah, we see at the end of this movie. Still gotta look his son in the eye and be like, "Yes, I killed your dad as I was having you baptized." Because he might have beat his son. He protected him. Okay, you're adding a lot of dots. You're adding uh, dots that aren't in The Godfather One and saying that the now they watch exist, the they extended didn't, you cut. Won't there. The do- you won't add the dots. I, I think that part of the the thing why he kills Carlo because first of all Carlo killed a member of the family and then secondly I mean Carlo is beating his sister I mean like there is like two things at play here I, I don't Carlo know Carlo is still the father of his nephew uh, that's you know? still something okay. and I mean to to literally like yes you can kill Carlo but to literally kill Carlo after you have just promised to be the godfather of his baby like after you've made he's that saying I'm gonna take guy, over because I'm killing him closer. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to be the father now. That's a family now. bond. I don't think his dad would have appreciated that. I think his dad would have vetoed that. I think Vito Corleone would have vetoed wow. that. Is what I'm saying. I feel like I get the arc in Godfather 1, honestly. Like, you know, I know last week I was like, I bet Godfather 2 really fills in the blanks. And then I watched it again. I was like, nah, 
Nah. I'm not ragging on you because I think this is this is a interesting point of view. I'm just saying that I just I I am amazed that you did not see this emotional core. This movie to me is so much more emotional than the first movie. Yeah, I guess I just didn't see it. Honestly, I mean, I I love I really love immigrant stories. Mm-hmm. You know, and I loved watching the Vito scenes. I really enjoy them. I enjoy the whole Vito world. I enjoy watching Robert De Niro speak Sicilian. I like that I can't tell if he's a good actor in Sicilian, but I would like to think he is. I mean, let's listen to him. Like, his emotions, you can hear him. He just is barazzati da besci che cos'ha tutto sto casino. E allora, e perché un po' sta? Un pozzo. E perché? Un pozzo. E ma voi siete siciliano? No, no, sono calabrese io. I mean, if I was an Oscar voter, I'd be like, sure, that sounds convincing. I think he's very good. And this is De Niro at the height of him being... De Niro, like the Daniel Day-Lewis version of De Niro, where he's gaining weight, he's studying, he's doing his whole thing. To prepare for this role, he spent four months learning Sicilian, and then he lived in Sicily for three months, all right? I do have an issue with Robert De Niro, and I wanted to bring it up. We just played that clip. Um, All right, so I've queued up two clips for you. All right, this is Robert De Niro talking to his friends. So you have got the monita. Give all so that's him doing a little brand new. He's talking a little bit like this. And now this is him in the scene right before this. The whisper completely gone. Like he goes in and out of that Brando whisper. And I was like, it caught me a couple of times. I'm like, sometimes he's talking like this. And then sometimes he's just back in a regular De Niro voice. I thought I mean, that was so... And what's kind of funny about that is like Brando came up with that voice because he imagined that that character had been shot in the neck, that he'd been injured in the neck, and oh. that's why he had that whisper. But in this timeline, as we see it, I find young Vito Corleone... Okay, I do find a couple of things a little weird about that character. Mm-hmm. He comes here from Italy. I, I appreciate that there is something in him a little dead inside because he's been through this... Oh my gosh, orphaned, he watched his mother be shot. His mother shot get friend. murdered, his brother get murdered. He's seen everybody in his family die. He winds up there. So I get that he might have the center coldness, a little ruthless. By the way, the same Vito Corleone that you said is going to veto the uh, the death of Carlo goes back for revenge about 30, 40 years later to kill an old man as he sits on a chair and doesn't hurt anyone because what? They killed a member of his family. So they killed maybe- his mom. That's a bit of a bigger deal. He killed his brother and his son. Ah, he just made a phone call. I mean, no, but what I'm saying is this. Then Vito shows up in Little Italy. He grows up there. He's, he lives there from mm-hmm. when he's nine-ish, I suppose, until when he's a grown man. And yet, he doesn't seem to have ever heard of the black hand until he's like a grown man. You know, he doesn't seem to have gotten shot in the neck by the time he has that whisper. And he goes to the play with his friend. His friend's like, check out that hot babe. By the way, that's the black hand who comes into your grocery store, but you've never been aware of this. Well, I by find the way, that a little weird. He just suddenly that was, learns about the black hand. That was in the original Mario Puzo book. I, the thing I didn't realize about this film was that that was the only part of the uh, Godfather book that was kind of repurposed for the second film, uh, Coppola and Mario Puzo collaborated on the Michael and Nevada storyline, but they repurposed the Ellis Island, the Sicily, and the coming to be of Vito Corleone from the book. But either way, he's speaking like he got a bullet in his neck before he got a bullet in his neck. Now, all of this together, I was like, well, how did, like, 
you know, how did De Niro kind of prepare for this? And I thought this is interesting. De Niro, it's very hard to find interviews with him. There is literally a two-hour retrospective of The Godfather at the Tribeca Film Festival where he only answers one question, and this is it. Filmed uh, the scenes that Brando was in, and I played them over and over again for myself as I was working uh, on it. Um, but it wasn't, it, it was great. I, I looked at it in a kind of a scientific way. I had to sort of find spots where I could do stuff to imitate what he's doing. Um, and I, I enjoyed it, you know. I thought that was interesting that it was a conscious choice. I feel like that voice was conscious, obviously, like he was trying to imitate him. But I also felt like he was trying to do his own kind of work. Maybe that was the voice that he put on as his mafioso voice, almost like his superhero cape. We talked about superhero movies earlier on in the movie. Like maybe that's his, you know, the voice that he would give him a little bit more power. I mean, I was thinking of of how they stole that joke for the solo movie. They're like, you're a Vito Hanaloni Corleone? I'm calling you Vito Corleone. And then right. when Han is trying to get to the other yeah. world, they're like, Han, don't you have anybody with you? No? Guess you're a Han Solo. Well, I mean, look. The idea of the way they took that was way better than Solo. I mean, like, that's what they did. That's what Ellis Island was like. That's like a that's thing true. that they did. Okay. But, I, but if we're going to be making allusions to our favorite movies about people making it in New York, yeah. about the difficulty of things, sure. to me, an immigrant story, I just want to play a clip from the immigrant story that mattered in my heart way before I saw The Godfather mm-hmm. 2. <laughs> You think that things were bad in Russia? You should see things in my country. <laughs> times were hard in Sicily. We had no provolone. The don he was a tabby with a taste for my brother Tony. When Mama went to plead for him, the don said he would see her. We found her rosary on the ground. Poor Mama Mia. But. I mean, that's basically Godfather 2. His mom gets shot. He has Man alive. Amy, Amy, Amy. By the way, we were talking about Solo a second ago, and I want to say that this movie I'm did... I'm so sorry I brought up Solo. No, now. because I was going to bring it up as well. You they, were? Yes, because they did something in this movie that I thought Solo attempted but did a bad job of. In that same scene... Solo was perfect. Um, I know, I know that you're you're a huge fan of Solo and all the things that he was up to, and can't wait to see him in the uh, the Star Wars you more. So in that movie, they do this thing that I hated, which was they play the Imperial March like they like he sees some ad for the Empire and they're like, dun, dun dun dun, and it's like oh that sucks, I hate that. Um, but here they play the Godfather theme twice. Uh, in natural music around our main character. And I was like, oh, that's the way that you do it. Like, it is of the time, is of the culture, and it's a little bit of a nod of the hat, uh, but it didn't feel, it didn't take me out. I was like, oh, the Godfather theme. I mean, I think it took me out a little bit. I counted at least four times. Maybe we should just play them all in a row. Whoa. Funeral, communion, and bedtime. Okay. Yes, 
like your party. I got lots of presents. I know. Did you like them? I didn't know the people who gave them to me. Hmm. You're my friends. I call a, I call a flag on this play because that is that is music that is scoring the film. It is, it is. You're right. This is the one moment where it's not like, oh no, no, the Godfather right. theme is just the hit banger of the yeah. Year. Uh, you know, I do think this movie does do a lot of self referential stuff. We talked a lot about the oranges in the first movie. How the oranges are a precursor of death. There's so many oranges in this movie. I kept yelling like, just stay away from oranges. Can't somebody write down on a rock? Never touch an orange. Yeah, Corleone. but it's funny because you have a you know Gordon Willis last week saying, well, not he didn't say it to us, but we. You read one of his quotes that the oranges were there to kind of brighten up the scene. But I think a lot of people said, oh, whenever you saw an orange, it meant death. Um, and here they really lean into it. I mean, it's there's so many times you have uh, the senator playing with oranges at the Corleone house before being framed for murder. Uh, Johnny Ola brings an orange to Michael's office before attempting to take his life. Fanucci eats an orange before he's gunned down. Michael eats an orange while plotting to kill Roth. Young Vito buys oranges on the street before plotting the assassination of Fanucci. Uh, Vito dies after eating and playing with oranges with his grandson. That was at the end of the first one. Which also makes me think, don't ever play with the kids in your family. (laughs) All of these things are really bad luck. I mean, it's... I think watching this film so close to The Godfather made it feel too echoey. I was like, I love your callbacks. Usually I would love a callback, actually. Usually I'd be like, oh, look, they took the musical theme and they worked with it. They made it fun. They made it a nursery rhyme. The first film, you know, when you see the poster for it, it is Marlon Brando. And Marlon Brando plays a very small part relatively in The First Godfather. He is is the – the specter that hangs over the film, but he's not necessarily the driving force. And here we really get to live with Michael and Vito, you know, at separate times. And I just, I loved learning about Michael and especially that final scene. And I kind of hate that Coppola re-edited the films and put them together in the seven hour version where they take that scene at the end of Godfather 2 where it's the boys at the table. This is where uh, Talia Shire meets Carlo for the first time. It's a great, great. And it also like lets me understand what that relationship is and puts that at the end because I think it's such a great moment. It's like, oh, Michael didn't become this. He was always this. Like he always was doing what he thought was best and not doing what was best for the family. He was always doing what was best for himself. And if anything, the Michael that we meet happy and in love with Kay, that's the outlier of his entire life. Yes, and we are tricked by that character because that's how we're introduced by to him. And so I think, you know, when you see that scene at the end, you're like, oh, it was always, he was always that. There are so many moments where I just, I welled up. I got so emotional. Like just watching the two kids sitting alone in that room he's not comforting them you know when his mom has died i just feel like he he always is almost separate from anyone i think one of the things that would have made this movie even better and it's a shame because of casting first of all you want to see brando back again i think that to see him in that final scene he didn't show up on the day they were shooting that final scene which is crazy jimmy Kahn expected to get paid the same amount of money that he did for the entire godfather one for that one scene that one day and he got it and he got it yeah I mean, Brando wanted a ton more money that they weren't going to give him because, in part, uh, Yablins, the one of the producers yeah. over at Paramount, he was mad that Brando had not shown up at Oscar nights. So there were sort of these ripples oh, from him wow. not showing up, and he was like, "Fuck that guy! I don't that, care." By the way, it's it's a strong. I mean, it's a strong scene. It would have been great to see them together one more time because I think it would have really just driven home the separation of the 
of the plot. But I mean, it is weird that they like cast De Niro in part because they thought he really looked like Brando. Mm. And I mean, it's strange. I think it's strange when you have an actor that you know what they looked like young, and then they cast right. a person that you also know, and they like want you to imagine that that's what they looked like young. And it seems like the sort of gambit they could have only pulled off because people didn't really know who De Niro was at this point. And I heard Coppola say like he didn't care that he didn't look like Brando. He just wanted someone to have the weight of Marlon Brando. And I do believe that they have a similar energy to them. Like there is a a reserve nature to Vito and De Niro that I think is very similar. Because they don't look, he just looks nothing like a young Brando. Not um, really. I mean, what's funny is, you know, having these two people, having De Niro and Pacino in this movie, these two people who've kind of set the tone, I think, for the modern actors of this world. Yeah. And having them be so open about how they were in this movie that made them both massively famous, so influenced by Brando, this kind of, you know, take from column A, I ingest it, and now I spit it yeah. out, and you ingest it from me, and we're pa- it's almost like a communion wafer or something. They're passing it forward and forward and forward. Pacino has the story that when he was a little kid, you know, he was doing a school play, and he made himself physically sick because he got so into character. And when he made himself really sick on stage, all the kids started to tease him and call him Marlon Brando. So it was his nickname even when he was a little kid at school. Right. So this passing of the torch, I find really interesting. You know, in that, I mean, we were trying to talk about the influence of The Godfather last week. And is its influence just that it inspired a gazillion, 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 gazillion mafia movies? I think maybe The Godfather is to young actors the way that, say, Streetcar Named Desire was to their generation. Mm. You know, kind of like a contagion point. Well, where everybody yeah. said, I want to be like those young guys. Well, here, again, I think this is a point that we can make about High art, low art. And this is what I think about The Godfather. I think The Godfather walks this line. I've talked about this a lot. And, and we're talking about the Marvel films early on too. This is a movie that appeals to the masses that feels like it might be an art house movie. It's very accessible. It's very mainstream. It's a huge, huge hit. Um, and so it affects so many people. And, you know, it becomes these guys become household names. They're not becoming household names because of Mean Streets. I mean, if anything, Mean Streets and those films are becoming household names because people saw these films yes. and then went back and explored. I think you can pull this whole thing together and say, well, look, De Niro also gets the Oscar for playing a character that Brando already played. It's the only time in Oscar history that two different actors won for the same role. And Just that, wait till those Iron Man statues start pouring in. <laughs> but I mean, like to think of that as a real passing of the torch from one generation to the next, that's streetcar passing to Godfather. Yeah, you I mean, and especially when they're acting in scenes with Strasberg himself, with yes. this guy who taught everybody to act in his very first film. I mean, I want to hear a little bit of Lee Strasberg because he, if we talk about shadows of Brando hanging all yeah. over this film, Lee Strasberg, I think, has been a shadow for us for a couple of months now. Him and his method and his teaching and these actors that he inspired in, in the New York stage scene who then went on and changed Hollywood. And now here he is making his very first movie and being super nervous about it. So let's listen to how he does. This is him giving us a hint of why he might be the person who will still betray Michael Corleone. As much as anyone, I loved her and trusted her. Later on, he had an idea to build a city out of a desert stopover for GIs on the way to the West Coast. That kid's name was Mo Green. 
and the city he invented was Las Vegas. This was a great man, man of vision and guts, and there isn't even a plaque or a signpost or a statue of him in that town. Someone put a bullet through his eye. I love this performance, and one of my favorite moments in it is so small, and I think I always gravitate to small moments, but it's during his uh, birthday party, and you know they're cutting the cake, and he gets a piece of cake, and he's in the middle of holding court, and he's like, smaller piece. And then just goes back, it's just, it's just a small little character thing that I just loved. But what I kept being mm-hmm. uh, struck by when I was watching Strasbourg is how similar his Hyman Roth is to how Brando plays Vito and to how Michael plays uh, Michael. And now I'm just calling Albertino Michael, how Albertino plays Michael. These are all people who play these powerful men at a whisper. They're all doing the same thing. And even when Lee Strasberg, you first see him for the first time, you watch him take up space in weird ways, kind of the way Brando would do. You know, Brando's mm. in his first scene is petting a cat. Hyman Roth is sitting with his leg over a chair in a way yeah. that I feel like I'm the only one who ever does. I feel like I'm the only one who doesn't know how to sit properly in a I chair. I love but watching he's like, that. My scene. character doesn't know how to sit in a chair. And I'm no, I just do think it. he's. I think that that actually shows how at ease he, like how almost dangerous he is, because Michael comes and Michael is the head of a giant crime family. He doesn't move, and he basically says the game will be over in a second, and we can talk then. It's such a high status move. To show, like, he couldn't be more relaxed. I don't know. I, I, lo- I love those choices. How but much I, do you love all the furniture, too? Like, all these oh. patterned drapes that match the couches? My God. I mean, the drapes did match the couch, right? That, 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 you want to yeah. ask Kyman Ray? <laughs> do I? <laughs> but you know what? I will. But don't you see? Uh, but okay, I disagree I, with you. I want to say one thing I disagree with you about. Tell I me don't what think, you disagree with me. I don't think that Michael runs his business at a whisper. I think that he is contained anger. You see his anger all the time. You never see it with Vito. You, I mean, every, like, the biggest pop, we talked about that last week, was when he slapped the Frank Sinatra character because he was crying. He's like, get yourself together. And I still believe that that was a, uh, a, like an improvisation from Brando. Um, but Michael is seething and 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 explosive at all points in that first scene where he's doing business with the senator and he goes i'll tell you what my offer is it's nothing and it, it's so he's not well he's not a charmer like his dad is able charmer. to talk people into doing things by being nice and these two are i mean brando and hyman roth are charmers michael is not a charmer yeah but he's a he's a whispering mean guy i don't think he's whispering i mean i i I'm think a he's whispering mean I, I, because I think he's, I mean, I don't think he's a yelly. He's a yelly guy. He's not that yelly. He only yells what, I mean, this is really the only time he yells. You heard what happened in my home? Mike, I almost died myself. It was all so relieved. In my home! In my bedroom where my wife sleeps! Where my children come and play with their toys. I mean, he just turns the volume from low to high to back down. And I hear this vibration in his voice that I only really hear in modern day Ben Foster. Uh, (laughs) I do feel like, I don't know. I just feel like he is seething the entire movie. He's seething. Well, yes. I do want to talk about this. And this is what I was trying to bring up before that this connection of the two worlds and and what I would have liked in this movie, what I think would have made it better. 
So in that scene where he's saying, in my home, that uh, was supposed to be against Clemenza, the guy, the actor who played Clemenza, who um, who was great. And we talked about him last week. But before filming began, the day before he was supposed to be on set, he wanted a lot of money. He wanted to rewrite his lines. And they just slapped in this actor, Michael V. Gazzo, to replace him. Now, Frankie Pantangeli, I love this character. I think this actor does an amazing job. But for connective tissue purposes, if it was Clemenza, it would have been so much better. I mean, it would have just carried so much more weight. I mean, we're... Okay, for the sake of the actor who played Clemenza, there's another story to this. There's another side. There's another side. There's two sides. Two sides here. The actor, you know, Richard Castellano, his version of it was that Clemenza, the Clemenza that you see in The Godfather, the Clemenza who, you know teaches Michael how to make spaghetti, how to how to shoot a gun, that that Clemenza would never turn on the family. Mm-hmm. And so he was offended that his character was written to turn on the family. He's like, I just don't believe that he would do it. And also the reason why he says he was mad is because he was still losing weight because he heard he was going to have to play young yeah. Clemenza. So he lost a bunch of weight. And then they were like, no, we want you to be fat again. So then they were like, can you gain 50 pounds? He's like, I can't do this. This is too bad for my health. Hmm. I don't know where the truth lies in this one. I feel like this is a movie where everyone comes in wanting a lot of shit. Because look, we'll go. We'll we'll just start off at the top and say like, uh, you know, first of all, um, you know, Pacino gets paid six hundred thousand dollars for this film. The first film he's paid thirty five. Um, you know, uh, Connie gets you know one thousand five hundred for the first film, and the second she gets thirty k plus a 10K bonus when the film passes 27 million. You know, we talked before about how Jimmy Kahn wanted the same amount of money. We know now because Duvall just doesn't give a shit. He was like, oh, the reason why I'm not in Godfather 3 is because everyone was getting paid literally five times more than me. And I was like, that's incredibly insulting. So this is like a thing where I feel like everyone was like, flexing their muscle uh, the day before. Taking their characters too literally? Yeah, well, I mean, look, Michael, I mean, Al Pacino, needed to make adjustments to the script the night before they started shooting or he was going to walk. I mean, this seemed like a lot of egos. Brando not showing up. I just think that like... And yet there's people who didn't show back up. You know, like Al Ruddy, the producer we talked about last mm-hmm. time, he decided not to come back for Godfather 2 because he had been bragging during the press about it. He's like, oh man, I outfoxed the mafia. They were real mad at me and I uh, tricked him. And then he started to get threatening phone calls from the mafia and he said, you know what? I don't want to come back. I yes, that, that was a big hit. Yes, this might be another big hit. I don't want to do it. I mean, even Coppola didn't want to make this movie though. He used to say that he would only do a sequel to The Godfather if he could call it Abbott and Costello Meet the Godfather. <sighs> I'm serious because he was like, you know what? If I do The Godfather 2 and if it bombs then everybody's going to be like, oh, the only reason the first one was any good was because of Brando. Right. And so he's like, that's too much of a risk. If I stop at one Godfather, then for the rest of my life, I can be the guy who made one Godfather. And that's great. I can make as many shitty movies as I want if I'm the guy who made the one Godfather. So he said no six times. And they were like, this is literally what Paramount told him. They said, you have the recipe for Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is how they described it. You have the recipe for Coca-Cola and you don't want to use it. So finally they gave him a million dollars and he was like, fine. By the way, he did because this is a movie that, I mean, is viewed very much as like the apex of what a sequel should be. I mean, you know, some people think it surpasses The Godfather. I think that Francis Ford Coppola has done so much work 
to make them feel like one film, you know, through the way it was broadcast on television to even earlier this year with his seven hour cup for HBO. Who's asking for that? I, he just wants to, <laughs> I mean, I, like, I, like, like, I think he is not content to view them as two films yeah. well, because okay, he's not know, tacking on. I mean, by the way, yeah. what was the conversation for Godfather three? I, I would love to know uh, the guy who didn't want to do a sequel. And it was I like, think it was yeah. just, here is a blank checkbook. Yeah, okay. sure. So, Paul, here we are talking about the effect of The Godfather, and there is actually a person who wrote a book about the effect of The Godfather called The Godfather Effect. His name is Tom Santopietro, and this book is actually a really personal story for him and also for, as he writes, Italian-Americans in this country as large, wrestling with the legacy of this film and its culture and what the impact that it had. Let's talk to Tom. So, Tom, tell me, what does this title of your book mean, The Godfather Effect? Uh, it's a title I wanted to use uh, because it works on, uh, hopefully, on several levels. Uh, the Godfather had an effect on me on a personal level as someone who's Italian-American. It had an effect on Hollywood um, and the way Hollywood did business and depicted Italians. And it had an effect uh, really on the United States at large. I call it the Italianization of American culture. It completely changed the way people looked at Italian Americans. And up until this time, when Italians were shown on film, they really fell into comic caricatures who spoke a like a this with a big accent, or the worst stereotype of Italian Americans, the organ grinder with his monkey. You've got me thinking of like Geppetto and Pinocchio. Yeah, exactly. And all of a sudden, there on screen was Don Corleone, who spoke quietly, was obviously extremely intelligent, controlled his own destiny, and people started to look at things differently. But he was also a mobster who had people killed. Absolutely. And therein lies the contradiction. (laughs) And that's what makes the film trilogy so interesting. Now, but see, we have mafia movies going back all the way to something, you know, like all the way to Paul Mooney and his original Scarface. Like, what's the difference in that movie compared to what what Coppola was doing with The Godfather? Oh, it's a complete sea change. And the single biggest difference is that all of those movies that had been made about uh, gangsters, just as you say, Scarface and uh, Little Caesar, they were never, ever made by Italian-Americans. And they were made by people who did not have an understanding of Italian-American culture. And so along comes Francis Ford Coppola, who is uh, uh, an Italian-American to the highest degree. And he brings an authenticity to the depiction of the culture. And I say in my book, Francis Ford Coppola is the only filmmaker who, when they were um, planting Don Corleone's garden, where Marlon Brando dies at the end of the first film, Francis Ford Coppola said that entire garden has to be planted only with Italian plum tomatoes. <laughs> and it was Francis Ford Coppola. Like, I love going through his Godfather diary, and he's making notes like, when they pour each other a drink, it needs to be anisette. And when it's in this bottle of anisette, it has to look homemade. And it has to look a little bit dusty. you know. And there have to be kids everywhere running underfoot because that's how it really, really, really is. And that's why all three films, uh, particularly the first two, read as so authentic uh, because he brought that uh, 
it was in his bones, and there had never been an Italian-American film that showed it in quite that way. Now, you say from your own background that you are from the product of, say, a Michael and a Kay, that your father is Italian-American and that your mother is from a very old, waspy English family. I mean, growing up, did you feel divided between these two identities? Absolutely. I felt uh, completely divided. And it's the one book I've written that has personal information like that because, you know, it starts with my name. Santo Pietro, of course, is as Italian as it gets. But my middle name is my mother's maiden name, which is Parker. And that is as waspy as it gets. So I grew up near my Italian relatives. And yet I was going to this very waspy private school. So I felt uh, pushed, pulled, you know, in two directions. And uh, the big thing and why I became so fascinated by the Godfather films and wanted to write about it, it sounds funny to say a film changed your life, but Godfather 2 changed my life. And when it's exactly 10 minutes into the film and you see the young Vito Corleone on the ship coming to America for the first time, and he passes the Statue of Liberty. And I was watching that movie. I know just where I was, and I thought, that's my grandfather. That's my grandfather coming to this country, making my life possible. And everything in terms of my identity turned upside down. I mean, I wonder if that's really what the hold is of this whole franchise for all Americans. You know, that this is a movie about how most of us have roots that came here. We came here from, you know, my parents are like Irish, Dutch, German, complete hodgepodge pilgrim. But we all right. made that journey, do, that Americans are all seeing themselves in that moment. I, I completely agree with exactly what you said. That's the genius of the story, because for me, it's relating to it as an Italian. And although the Corleones are Italian, it's your family coming to this country. It's all the people, that, the ancestors who came from Eastern Europe, from Asia. It, you know, we're a nation of immigrants. And that's what makes it, in its uh, particularity to the Italian-American experience, it in fact becomes a universal epic. Now, you point out something interesting, though, about The Godfather, which is that when this movie comes out in the 70s, really the cultural things that we're talking about, we're talking about the rise of feminism, we're talking about the amplified voices of the black power movement, and yet everybody stops what they're doing and they focus on this story, which is really a story of a vanishing white patriarchal culture. A absolutely. And I, that, I wanted to talk about that in my book because it was, in effect, a last... Um, gasp of that and it was a there was enormous nostalgic appeal in the uh, saga to a certain group of really to white males who had this sense of ah that's the way it used to be that's the way it should still be so on one level you have people responding nostalgically but then you have with all of these cross currents going around in the uh, air at that time I think leaking into people's reactions, you know, women would watch The Godfather, and what was their reaction when they saw Mama Corleone only there as a subservient figure, or Connie Corleone? So I think, depending on who you were, you reacted to the film in a very different way. Right, which I feel like is, you know, part of why Coppola made it a second time, because he was worried people weren't reacting to it the way he was, that they were seeing it as a hero story. And he, I mean, it's, and of course, uh, particularly when you get to part three, uh, when Michael Corleone uh, commits the ultimate sin, he's responsible for his own daughter's death. 
and there's just nothing worse than that. And that, again, all deliberate by Coppola. He didn't want the Corleones treated as heroes. There, there are certain heroic aspects to their character, but definitely not when it comes to the killing and the, um, uh, you know, the uh, what I would say is the the genius metaphor behind it, which is when Coppola decided that The Godfather was going to be a metaphor for American big business run amok. You bring up this really interesting statistic in your book. You say that according to the FBI in 2009, only 0.00782% of Italian-Americans possess any criminal associations. And yet, when you ask the American people at large, you know, a national Zogby poll said that 74% of the American public believes that Italian-Americans have ties to the mob. What is that? It's a complicated question. And when I speak on it, what I've noticed is... uh there's a generational divide. And what happens is that I would call the people of the um, greatest generation are the ones who are most sensitive about this uh, uh, image of Italian-Americans as mafia. They're the ones that object, really, to the godfather. Younger generation, baby boomers and younger, they're beyond that. They don't uh, think of Italian-Americans in that way. It's it's tough, these images of uh, pop culture and how powerful they are. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm wondering what you made of, say, the Jersey Shore. I have to tell you, I from start to finish, I was horrified by the Jersey <laughs> Shore. <laughs> I thought, this is the worst possible image of Italian-Americans. I felt like we had come so far, and then with Jersey Shore, we completely regressed. Now, you also wrote a book I want to ask you about called Sinatra in Hollywood, which I feel like dovetails so much as well with the Godfather series, of course. Is there truth to this idea that's now permeated because of the Godfather movies, because of Johnny Fontaine, that the mafia did help Sinatra's career in Hollywood? Uh, this is the number one question I get asked when I give talks on Sinatra, which I continue to do. And my answer unequivocally is Absolutely not. The mob had nothing to do with Frank Sinatra becoming a star. He became a huge star due to his own talent. And if you think about it, if the mob could make Frank Sinatra a big star, why didn't they do it with anybody else? And the horse's head incident, because Johnny Fontaine in The Godfather is, you know, clearly modeled on Sinatra, singer turned actor, um, that horse's head incident, Mario Puzo. Admitted, he completely invented, but it, the myth took on a life of its own, and that's where it became pernicious and, and really difficult. I would say sort of the, uh, the big statement I would make about it is if Frank Sinatra was really in any way mobbed up in that voluminous FBI file that J. Edgar Hoover had on Frank Sinatra, it would have come up, and there was absolutely no proof of it. And uh, just to show you how wacko J. Edgar Hoover was, <laughs> he had this enormous file on Frank Sinatra, and three quarters of the file was J. Edgar Hoover's belief that Frank Sinatra was a communist. Right, because actually in the Godfather book, that's the main sin they put on Johnny Fontaine, too, is that the studio chief thinks he's a communist, and also a womanizer. Yeah. And it, it's not, um, it's just that, you know, the, the horse's head thing is the worst association of um, uh, Sinatra and the mob. And uh, Sinatra himself was 
on the one hand, infuriated uh, by the godfather, the, the um, figure of Johnny Fontaine. But in that way that always happens, things kind of turned around because Sinatra, like all actors, always knows a good role when he sees it. And Sinatra almost signed on to play Don Altobello in Godfather Part Three. Why, why didn't he? Two reasons. The biggest reason was it involved location shooting and Sinatra being an unbelievably impatient man would never have sat still for weeks and weeks and weeks of location shooting. And the second reason was his then-wife, Barbara Sinatra, his last wife, in effect said to him, with all of the rumors about you, not a good idea for you to be playing a mobster in a Godfather movie. Ah, so Godfather 3 was an offer that he could refuse. <laughs> I might steal that line for the next Sinatra talk I give. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, Tom, thank you so much. This has been so fun. Your book is called The Godfather Effect. It is The Godfather Effect, Changing Hollywood, America, and Me, and Thank you very much for having me on. I've really enjoyed this. Me too. Me too. Take care. I mean, you know who does think The Godfather 2 is the best film ever? Who? Somebody that I usually trust a lot. It's special to stand uh, on the shores of Lake Tahoe. I, I have never been here. No, I, I, I had... What? I, it's not like I didn't want to come. Nobody invited me. I didn't know if I had a place to stay. So now that I've, I finally got here, I'm gonna come back. And, and I wanna come back not just because it's beautiful, not just because, well, not just because I love you back, not just because The Godfather 2 is maybe my favorite movie. As I was flying over the lake, I was thinking about Fredo. It's tough. (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk about Fredo a little bit more, but um, I do want to talk about this character of Clemenza because what I love about it is, truthfully, that would happen. You know, this, you know, this, the whole idea of like, you know, guys turning on each other and getting caught. He believed that Michael tried to kill him. So I think he wanted to take him down. Like he, he wouldn't have done it normally, but this whole thing that goes on, I think, I think it's actually very believable. And I think it's actually more damning. That's what I'm saying. It's a more emotional weight where a movie that I feel like is so emotional at its core. You know what I can't reconcile though? It's like, he thinks that they were going, he thinks that Michael wants to kill him because as he's getting attacked, you know, as they're shooting at him in the bar, somebody yells, you know, Michael Corleone says hi. Yeah. Yells Michael Corleone says hi. Yeah. Apparently that was an improvisation and he wasn't supposed to do it. I know. And they kept it in and that throws off the whole thing. Like if he doesn't yell, Michael Corleone says hi, it's more ambiguous. We never quite know who to believe. Like Michael denies it, then takes it, blah, 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 blah. And, and But I think there is a mystery here throughout this film that I actually think works because you're like, obviously they had that and they're like, oh, that's so great because they're trying to, you know, gild the lily in a way. Like they're trying to, you know, like 
Because it wasn't like they just did one take of that scene on one angle. They shot it millions of times. And and especially at the pace that they were shooting. I mean, a pace that was so frustrating that like Al Pacino, you know, I guess the story is like he yelled like, can we hurry it up? It only took 19 days to shoot Serpico. And this movie took like 109, uh, 104 <laughs> actually. When you when you see that as an audience, you're like, oh, is it, did Michael do this? And you don't know. And I, I think that you're guessing the entire film. That's true. I mean, I think my favorite Frank scene is when he's up at the bandstand at the mm-hmm. opening communion. Yeah. And he's and he's trying to get the band to play an Italian song. Yeah. I can't believe out of 30 professional musicians, there was a one Italian in the group here. Come on, let's have a talent there. I mean, first, I would listen to a whole album of Frank Patangeli sings the hits. Uh, like, I love his voice. It's like, I mean, this opening scene goes so hard on the idea that these wasps that Pacino wants the family to belong yeah. to so much. Just don't respect them. Don't care. They can't Mispronounce, even pronounce yes, Vito. I know. Vito, Vito. Again, I love it. In 12 minutes, you see so much go on in this opening you know, sequence. The same way that I think they spend 30 minutes in the first movie kind of really laying out the whole family. In this, they're, they're setting up two worlds, and they set it up so effectively, so beautifully. And you see like this it's like oh what has he done in three years what has he done here I mean, um, it is like you don't want to belong to a club that would make you eat ritz crackers with moose no. although i like ritz crackers and liver moose uh, but but yeah, i mean there's, like, there's these insults left and right you know and this this futility of the corleone quest to try to be legit and it's it's less safe like you know it's like you look at you you have you have guys on the roof with rifles. You don't see that in the first movie. You you know, like when something goes on, like Sonny goes out there to slap a camera away, but these guys are ready to throw down, you know, and, and look, one of the things we didn't really talk about was like this this is a you know, this assassination subplot, which will really figure into the uh, the Fredo story of the whole thing, but like he is not liked, he's not beloved, he is the white hat. You're watching Michael be the guy that Vito took over for. Yeah, you're watching Michael be the Italian version of Colonel Sanders. I mean, because that, that's so much what that guy reminds me of. I'm sorry. Colonel but, Sanders? I mean, he's just on. in a white suit, ain't he? He's in his white suit. He's like, hey. He's not, he's not like Colonel Sanders is talking about his secret <laughs> recipe and has a big southern drawl. Like, I think this guy has a lot of secrets. Maybe he's from southern Italy, but he's not, uh, he's not he's like, oh my gosh. He says, wet my beak. I think Colonel Sanders would say wet my wet beak. Wet my beak. No, he wants somebody else to wet his chicken's beak. Um, I mean, Finucci, I just think, is so funny. I mean, he's just giant and ridiculous. He's also why I was thinking of American Tale, because he reminds me, you know, in American Tale, there's that whole subplot. No, I don't know an American Tale, Amy. You say it like, you know in American. How do you know no. how, how, how do I know? Because I've watched it once as a kid. It's like, oh, boy, American what? Tale. I feel oh. bad for your kids. They should watch this movie. Really? Okay. It would help them understand America. It was my mom's wedding song. My mom <laughs> made me dance to Don't Go Changing the Billy Joel song and got married to somewhere out there. So there's a no, lot of fifal shit in our house. Well, for the people who actually care about cinema mm. out there. Mm-hmm. In American Tale, 
there's this whole plot, plot where where Fievel the mouse befriends a mouse who's sort of the boss, the Fenucci of the group, yeah. and then he finds out that Fenucci's really a cat. By the way, f- by the way, Fenucci uh, does look like one of those characters from that clip that you showed. Uh, but I do find American Tale to be despicable. Um, you haven't even watched. It. Does make a difference. I just lumped it all together. Don Bluth is despicable. Oh my god, you're on the wrong side of this, buddy. You know what I like? I like uh, tough guys with tiny cups. That's what I wrote down here. I like tiny cups. These guys, I, these are the <laughs> toughest guys eating uh, out of tiny cups and, and eating cake. I love it all. Um, <laughs> I mean, it is so heavy-handed too. When Hyman Roth is like, everybody gets a piece as they're cutting. I mean, yeah. this movie is. I, you know, we talked about this a little bit with Shawshank. I think there is kind of a sweet spot. The, the, the movie is good. I'm not saying this movie is bad. I'm not saying this movie is bad. I feel like I need to repeat that twelve times. The movie is not bad, but it is the kind of movie that. You know, wears its Easter eggs on its sleeve. One on maybe on your first watch, maybe on your second watch, it'll be like, oh, everybody gets a piece as he's cutting, everybody right. gets a piece. And it makes you feel very smart because they leave a lot of crumbs for you to pick up and say, I know what you're doing there. Right. And the whole movie is that. The whole movie is like, well done. You I see, get your reference. But you see, I wasn't chasing that. I was I mean, again, I was chasing the emotional game like Fredo. This Fredo story, people were upset last week that we didn't really get into Fredo and, and John Cazal, who we talked about a lot in The Deer Hunter and is viewed by all these actors that we just talked about, these 70s actors that are the you know the, the biggest people in the game from Meryl Streep and Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. They all view him as one of the best. Um, and this he is arguably- such a great physical presence. You know, the way he sort of walks in like a yes, droopy, floppy yes. piece of straw. I wrote this, I go, I was, like, I was like, this still versus floppy. Like you talk about Hyman Roth in the chair with his leg over it. That scene where they're in- the uh, what I want to call it the boathouse, but it's just like that you know windowed, walled room where they they have their kind of confrontation where Fredo tells him everything and he does an amazing speech. But his body is just he's doing so much with his body. And Richard Shepard, who is a director I've worked with in the past and I love, made a documentary about uh, John Cazal and. There's a great little story that Al Pacino tells about John Cazale. It's a hard story to kind of piece together, but I think it really explains what was so good about him in this era of actors really trying to outact each other. We did this play, and I remember starting out and uh, thinking, well, uh, you know, say my line to him, and he'd say a line back to me, but it wouldn't be a line would be something else, it was sort of what he was feeling at the time. And then I would say, you know, we gotta do this and, and this and that, and he says, we gotta do this and we gotta do that. He said, I'd say, yes. He'd say, well, what do we have to do, Al? We have to do this. And then he would just sort of circumvent and go this way and that way and eventually, he would get us in a place where we were really talking to each other about things that were really there, things that were in us. I can't even call it improvisation. I can call it uh, aligning oneself up to the character. You never knew when acting started with John and when it ended. There's something so vulnerable to him. And I think when this era of actors really like, I'm act, I'm going to deliver this model, I'm going to do this thing. He basically like reveled in low status or, or, or reveled in, in just really leading with the basest of emotions, if that makes sense. I don't know. I mean, maybe that's why his death is so painful in the movies, because he's the only character I think really 
that the movie allows you to lend your entire heart to, mm-hmm. even though he's ridiculous in the first movie. He's sort of yeah. like he's sidelined in Vegas. When he shows up, he's just sort of tacky. He's like, let's have a party. And he's just the sad yeah. guy. You know, here even he says some sad things that people just sort of observe and drop like, mom said I was uh, really from gypsies. And everybody's yeah. like, oh, okay, let's just, let's just move on from that one. And you see his desperate trying to fit in. It's kind of like uh, Coach Steve on Big Mouth. You know, it's sort of like this idea that he wants to, he just wants a connection. He wants to be a part of this family where everyone has a place. He doesn't have a place. And he's, he just wants to be in the loop. And, and the only thing he knows how to do is to just be like, he's like the person in the waiting room. Like before you get into the room where things happen, he's the person outside there. And, and he's, and like, he's a gesture. Can I jester. get you a martini? Yeah. Can he's I a, show you a guy with a giant cock? He, I mean, he's a, he, he's a jester who knows he's a jester. You know, it's like that realization of like, what have I become? I'm looking at everybody around me and it's, and he just wants to be in and he wants to be in so much that he makes this deal and doesn't even think it through because it's almost like I feel like someone's just reaching out their hand to him and they play him not because, you know, he says it so much. It's like that he would have something instead of nothing, you know, like, and it's so like, that's how they get to him by like acknowledging him. I, I just think that that's, oh, what an, emo- I mean, it's like, it's gut wrenching because it, it's not, he doesn't want to kill him. He doesn't want to kill his brother. There's no anger there. It's not like Al Pacino that wants to go kill Carlo or or, or uh, Hyman Roth. Like, I don't know. There's something so wonderful about those two being brothers. And the fact that he's older than him is, oh, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, let's listen to him give his defense of why everything played out the way that it did. It, it'll be good for the family. You believe that story? You believe that? He said there was something in it for me, on my own. I've always taken care of you, Fredo. Taking care of me? You're my kid brother and you take care of me? Did you ever think about that? Huh? you ever once think about that? Send Fredo off to do this, send Fredo off to do that. Let Fredo take care of some Mickey Mouse nightclub somewhere. Send Fredo to pick somebody up at the airport. I'm your older brother, Mike, and I was stepped over. That's the way Pop wanted it. It ain't the way I wanted it. I can handle things. I'm smart. Not like everybody says. Like dumb. I'm smart and I want respect. Oh, my God. That's tragic. And it is also verbatim the last couple sentences, like a, a tweet from the president. <laughs> this scene is so beautifully kind of blocked. It's like Fredo's down in the chair. He's floppy. You know, it looks like he even has a tick going on. You know, his hand is doing something even faster than his rest of his body. You know, and and Michael grabs him to, you know, to tell him, like, I knew it was you. It's like this, like, this moment when he does do that in his face. It's like, it, it makes him more powerful when he does reach out to somebody because the two times I'm thinking in my head it, it, that is when he grabs him in the face and when he slaps Kay across the face. It's like these are the only two moments where he kind of crosses over into some sort connection. of a connection. And, and it's disastrous connection yeah. in both cases. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's in that in that Kay scene, you know, which was, uh, you know, Talia Shire uh, came up with that idea that Kay had the – uh, abortion, not a miscarriage. And whoa, when you, that, I, f- I forgot about that. I didn't remember that at all. I mean, that, 
I mean, this is a guy, when you watch Michael, it's like, yes, he's at fault for his own issues, but then these other things happen to him? Oh, like, you know, how does he ever recover? That's why I think that final shot is the most upsetting shot of the whole film. Just this, he's, bro- he literally, he's broken. He's broken, whereas Brando is surrounded by love, light, happiness, and joy. He is broken, cold, and alone. Yeah, I mean, you have, you know, repeated the same shots of Kay in this movie that you have in the last one. You know, mm-hmm. she gets the door shut in her face at the end of one. Here she has the gates shut in her face. It's like a kind of funny staging. They're like, you're driving out, now we will shut the gates. Yeah, we yeah, had yeah. them open, we were teasing you, and now we will shut the gates now that you're here. You have him shutting the door in her face again when she's there and trying to say goodbye to their kids. That scene, wow, wow. There's a lot of extra doors. Uh, I love that, but that's but, like a, what, yeah. I mean... You are like, what he has got to have some, there's a moment, it's Christmas, or it's a funeral, or it's a thing. He's going to, well, of course, and he doesn't. It's so fucking brutal. But just timing-wise, I mean, when this movie comes out in 1974, abortion had only been legal for a year. Wow. You know, Roe versus She's Wade was only in. the year before. So having even a character in a film say I had an abortion, say hmm. the words. Like, not even just allude to it, like it was yeah. taken care of. But say, I had an abortion is major. And then for this even to be a period piece on top of that, I mean, the only time women couldn't get abortions that easily when in the period when Kay had one. Right. You know, and so sometimes I wonder, like, did she even have one or is she just saying that to mess with him? Because the hurdles she would have to go through living in a world where she's already trapped behind a gate to find a doctor who would do this without any of the men finding mm-hmm. out would also be almost impossible. Well, I don't that know doctor how, could be killed. Exactly. I don't know how she would even have managed to get one. Even if she didn't get one, she's lying just to hurt him. But you hear this pain in her voice. I mean, I want to hear that. I'm going to change. I'll change. I've learned that I have the strength to change. And you'll forget about this miscarriage. And we'll have another child. And we'll go on. You and I. We'll go on. Oh. Oh, Michael. Michael, you are blind. It wasn't a miscarriage. It was an abortion. An abortion, Michael. Just like our marriage is an abortion. Something that's unholy and evil. I didn't want your son, Michael. I wouldn't bring another one of your sons into this world. It was an abortion, Michael. It was a son, a son, and I had it killed because this must all end. I mean, it is wild, by the way, that if you were an audience member in 1974 watching that scene, you wouldn't get to see Diane Keaton be Annie Hall for three more years. Wow. You wouldn't know the range that this woman has. You know, you would think of her as a dramatic actress, somebody who was in hair, and you wouldn't know that this woman was going to go on to be one of the best comedians we've had in my lifetime. I also say with Diane Keaton, it's a great example of an actor having a very small part but becoming incredibly memorable. Like when she even talks about The Godfather, she's like, I'm barely in the movie. Like I'm off to the side. She she probably has in both films – eight scenes, nine scenes, I mean, in, in seven hours, you know, and they're not, and a lot of them are very tiny scenes. But she really, again, we talked about Fredo being the emotional core. She also 
brings a reality to it. She's this outside voice. I love that idea that she is she is the everyman looking in on this and calling, you know, calling it out because I think what you said, like maybe it is Coppola going, no, 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 this is not a good thing. Like she's the person that allows us to say, this is bad. This is bad, 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 you know, and uh, I you know, just, speaking of bad, bad, yeah. bad relationships, by the way, mm-hmm. you, when they were making this movie, Francis Ford Coppola was having an affair. Okay. And his mom was very mad about it. His mom was on the set a lot. You know, his mom would show up a bit. I think it's even his mom in the in the casket. Yes, she's as a stand-in for the but yeah. How convenient is it that the mom dies that quick, by the way, when he's like, I can't oh, yeah. kill you till mom's dead. Oh, thank God. No, but I think it's it. like so, I think it's about a year or two. Yeah, she's not that old of a woman. She's very vibrant up until she has to Well, she's die. sitting alone in that in front of that fireplace. It seems like she's in like a side house. That's my dream. I want to sit alone oh, until the fireplace. And then, yeah, so Coppola's having an affair. Coppola's mom is there. And she starts yelling at him one day about having an affair, about cheating on his wife. Mm-hmm. And she does it while she's over the PA system accidentally. Oh. And so the entire set found out that he was having an affair. Like, what do you mean? Like, there's a PA system on the set? Yeah, like she somehow was next to a speaker and they were <sighs> fighting and she was like, you're breaking my heart. How dare you be it. sleep like cheating around? Oh, no. To kind of wrap up on the trilogy of emotional moments, I want to talk to you about Tom Hagen in this film. You know, Duvall has some great scenes, but there's a scene at the end where Michael is kind of riding him. Like, you know, I thought you were going to come in here and tell me that you changed your mind and you took a job in Vegas. And, you know, Tom is the most loyal character besides his number two number two after Rocco is killed trying to kill Hyman Roth, the new number two, who is just like a bruiser, who I love like poses as the um, as a reporter in a very uh, Lee Harvey Oswald kind of like getting shot. Uh, By in, Jack Ruby. Yeah, Jack Ruby scenario. Um, but I was like, why is he riding Tom Hagen so hard in that scene? Like, what did you think about that? I couldn't quite put my finger on, like, was it just, like, protective? Like, well, you're going to fuck me over, too? Is it just that? Is he just is he just now in his own way? He's like, I can't trust anybody, even though Tom has been loyal and by his side at points saying, like, put me in, coach. I'm ready to go. Yeah, I mean, there is a bit of weirdness that, for me, like, the weirdness with uh, Tom Hagen is that the movie starts and he's completely on the outside. And then after the assassination attempt that night, he goes from being on the outside to being promoted as the Don temporarily. Right. And I'm like, and then he, and then Michael just leaves. I'm like, how did you catch him up on everything? Like, how was he so out of the loop and then now plugged in at the top of the loop? And also his father's mistake in the first film was having an Irish guy be consigliere. And so Michael making a bigger seeming mistake from the outside of promoting him an Irish person to be temporary Don. Well, I think it was kind of loopy. I thought it was a little bit like substitute teacher-esque. It was sort of like, while I'm gone, you're running the business. You make all the decisions. And like you said, he's trying to be a straight businessman. So he was running all the, you know, I don't think he was going to take a meeting with the Rosados. You know, I think he was just going to be funneling the questions back to Michael because he would know where Michael is. I mean, look, he calls Michael or Michael calls him like about letting Kay leave. It's like, it's a very, I don't think he's like running it. And I think that that idea is great retroactive plotting, which is I kept you on the outside because I needed to know that if anyone ever fucked me over, you it couldn't be you. I, it wasn't like he made him the Don. I think it was like, if I die on this, if I get killed, 
I need to know the family's in good hands and my wife and my kids are protected and you'll do that job. I mean, there's no other, there's nobody else because he wasn't cultivating anybody else. He's already kind of extricated himself and he's out of New York and he's, you know, he basically, there's only one guy left. I mean, I guess he did trust Tom Hagen to buy like his kid a, a toy set. Like the little car. Yeah. Tom Hagen's a good guy. He's a good shopper. Tom's a good good guy. I like Tom. But I just thought it was interesting that, you know, I think it's his paranoia. And by the way, it's maybe just the idea that we're just seeing his paranoia now at all. Like how could he ever run this business and what else would he be doing and who else would he be killing? And and all the – his dad was so intuitive. And I think that the height of Michael's power in the beginning is understanding what's going on. He's like, all right. This happened. I know why it's happening. I'm going to go make a couple of moves, and we're going to get this going on. Um, but when his brother betrays him, you know, he could have expected a mole from anybody. Like, I think it just shook him to his core, and he'll never be, he'll never be good again. But you know what I think the overall tragedy is of this entire saga? What? Is what? that Vito Corleone had four kids, mm-hmm. uh, and then a fifth if you count Tom. It only Tom, I think, would have done a good job taking over the family. You know, the, the in in a series of films about family, it is the person who is half considered family. Sometimes he's considered family, sometimes he's not. They kind of toggle him back in and out. Right. He's the only person I think who would have done a good job. I think that Tom Hagen would have le- led with. We see his charisma. We see yeah. his civility, his manners when he's dealing with the movie producer. We also see that he knows how to think many steps ahead and that he's controlled. How about And he the, can kill when he needs to kill or he can give an order to kill when he needs to kill. So if, The senator scene in this film when the senator – I mean, what a dark moment that is too when the senator kills the prostitute and the and – the, Do you think the senator kills the prostitute or do you think they kill the prostitute and convince the senator that he killed the prostitute? Because you get this little glimpse of somebody it looks like they're wiping a knife or a razor blade in the bathroom. Um I feel like the way that they presented to Tom Hagen, because you see Tom first, is that he killed her. Yeah. Like yeah, because I think like, Tom Hagen had her killed, which to me is the darkest thing Tom Hagen would have ever done. Oh wow. I, I don't know. I I just think what it revealed was, you know, just like how this politician who is seemingly so clean cut and like, I don't like your, your greasy skin and your, your oily hair and your bad business. And then he's like murdering prostitutes. It's like, whoa, like, you know, like, wait, who's the bad, who's the bad guy now? Like, you know, I think, and you know, then he's up there in the Senate subcommittee and can kind of be highfalutin. Like, I think it's a stronger choice if he did do it. Um, because also I just feel like he's a weasel. Like, I think it's a weaker choice if he did it. Cause then he's like, Oh, I just happen to kill people. Like I'm a senator who happens to kill people. But I think it's like I a mean, favor, I think it's funny right? That, like the wedding from the first movie, the senator can't even show up. The senator that right. they know because it would be too embarrassing. And now the family's in a place where the senator does show up, but he's a jerk and hates right. them and is really mean. And then I, I think, I think they knock him out and they're willing to kill a girl to make him think he killed a girl to then own him because he's not behaving up until that point. Mm. I don't think it's a coincidence that that Tom just knows how to be there right away. Well, I mean, there's a lot of – I'm looking right now online on Reddit and there's a lot of theories. That is that, definitely where you go for the good theories. Uh, there are. I mean, I look. This Does HN of, have any theories about uh, this? <laughs> but you know what? The one thing that someone brought up on uh, on Reddit was that Geary did say this is a game they had played before. Um, but she survived before. But maybe they just, you know, a little bit more sadistic S&M. I mean, that was it, you know. Uh, and maybe they gave him some drugs. I mean, that seems to be the big 
the big theory online is that they supplied him with some drugs that brought out his depravity. They because, gave him kill drugs. Yeah, because like he was at he was at the killing. he was at that crazy sex show in Cuba too. So they show him like a little bit. You know who knows? But I think like to me, what I love about Tom Hagen in that scene and what's important about it is like. He's like, hey, we're gonna do. Will you do us a favor? We'll do you a favor. It's like it's not like we're not gonna blackmail you. We're not. We're gonna take care of you. We're gonna talk to you in a nice, calm voice. Like Michael wouldn't have done that, you know. But yeah, I agree with you. Tom Hagen is the way to go. I love Tom Hagen. One of the the detriments of three is that he's not in it, and it's like explained away. Like, oh yeah, he died. Oh okay. Like I mean, by the way, speaking he's of a businessman. High, he's a businessman. They die. Speaking of high, I don't know if we'll ever get to play this clip again, so I want to play it now. Mm-hmm. Because actually, it kind of dovetails with what we were talking about at the very beginning of this episode. So in 1979, Francis Ford Coppola presents Best Director at the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Um, before he goes on stage, he goes he, he takes a friend of his. He actually brings his whole family, but his family sits up in the balcony, and he sits down at the, at the main seats with a friend of his. And the friend is eating some chocolate, and he eats a piece of the chocolate, and then his friend freaks out because it's – medicinal chocolate. Why are you right? saying it like that? It's pot chocolate. <laughs> it's intense chocolate. Or, or it's like... Um, um, I mean, like, it's the 70s. It could be anything. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, yeah, it could yeah, be sure. like peyote, piece so of Yeah, chocolate. okay, great. So it's just drug chocolate. He takes drug chocolate and then he goes up and he presents an award and he gives this impromptu speech. He's, by the way, if you want to picture it, next to Ali McGraw, who looks really uncomfortable. You know, I... I'd like to say that I, I think that... Um, we're on the eve of something that's going to make the industrial re- revolution look like a, a small town tryout out of town. And I'm, I'm talking about the communications revolution. I think it's coming very quickly and that the, the movies of the 80s are going to be amazing beyond what any of you can dream just a couple of years away from now. And I can, uh, I see, I see a, a communications revolution that is about movies and art and music and digital electronics and computers and satellites and above all human talent and uh, it's going to make things that the the masters of the cinema who from whom we've inherited this business wouldn't believe the things that are going to be possible and in the spirit of this wonderful new cinema of the future we're very very honored to announce the nominees for the best director of 1979. By the way, Ali McGraw doesn't miss a beat, tries to tie it all together because it's like, oh, are they presenting a technical award? Nope. Nope, nope, nope. Wow, that is amazing. And he's itchy. Um. (laughs) So, you know, I was thinking, if we're going to talk about the legacy of this movie, where I really think there is perhaps the most Godfather legacy beyond Mm -hmm. mafia movies, beyond The Irishman, which I think we're going to have to talk about in a special episode. Because I will tell you, watching The Godfather and then watching The Irishman is a lot. Um, I think The Godfather has maybe the most significance in music. Because there are a lot of rappers who name check The Godfather. Let's listen to a bit. Michael Corleone, Vito Andalini, uh, Godfather bitch, bitch, no nigga can see me. Uh, I'm robbing in the streets like my name was Capone. Fuck the rap game soon as my niggas come home. Damn, boy. It's like a family, Corleone style, for mafioso. I want to thank you for having me organize this meeting here today. And Kelly Staraki, I also want to thank you 
and all the other dons of the four families. Beyonce Corion from the Southwest. Uh, Latavia Minza from the 4-4. Our objective of this meeting today is to discuss Destiny's Child's commandments of relationships. What? <laughs> what? Destiny's Child did some fucking Corleone shit? Oh, Whoa. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that was Rick Ross, Snoop the Dog Father, Lana Del Rey, and Destiny's Child. Wow. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Amy, that, I, I'm, 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 I can't even get over that Destiny's Child one. I didn't know they were doing skits. Um, but tell me about these reviews, because there were some bad ones, and then later on, a lot of people changed their minds. I mean, Roger Ebert went from basically calling it, like, a shit fest to saying it's one of the best movies ever made, right? Yeah, I mean, the people that I pulled, I pulled a tiny bit from Molly Haskell, the village voice, because mm-hmm. I love her, and it's very rare we get to to have her on here. She said, quote, the characters are not only not mythic, they're not even very interesting. The actual dialogue could be contained on the back of a grocery list, and the use of Italian dialogue with English subtitles can't even conceal its inanity. Uh, that was just a taste of it. A longer one comes from Vincent Canby, our good old buddy Vincent Canby, who See. calls the movie a Frankenstein's monster stitched together from leftover parts. It talks, it moves and fits and starts, but it has no mind of its own. Everything of any interest was thoroughly covered in the original film, but like many people who have nothing to say, part two won't shut up. He says it looks very expensive but is spiritually desperate, that it has the air of a long, long, very elaborate review sketch, that the plot defies any rational synopsis, but that it allows Mr. Coppola in his role as director to rework lots of scenes that were done far better the first time. And then if Camby says, nothing is sacred, the interiors are so dark, you wonder if these mafia chiefs can't afford to buy bigger light bulbs, Nina Rota's old score keeps thumping away like a heavenly jukebox, the performers seem wet- locked into waxily rigid attitudes, that Mr. Pacino, so fine the first time out, goes through the film looking glum, sighing wearily as he orders the execution of an old associate or a brother, winding up very lonely and powerful, which is just about the way that he wound up before, and that Mr. De Niro, one of our best young actors, is interesting as the young Vito until towards the end of the section of his film, he starts giving a nightclub imitation of Mr. Brando's elderly Vito. Wow, 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 wow. But it's interesting because it, just like many films on this list, Everyone now loves The Godfather 2. And we talked last week, like, should The Godfather 2 be higher? After watching it, I have a theory, I have a point of view on it, which is I think it should be one and two in the same slot. I think that they are they are very much tied together as one. Well, I got to say, you know, after I've watched it, my question is... Oh, boy, I love this. I love it. I love it. Yes, Destiny's Child. Yes, yes, Kelly Corleone. It's a nice film. But, you know, I got a nephew that could use a slot on the AFI list. And I'm saying, can you make some room? Do we need this wow. film here? I think maybe you don't. Maybe you sleep on it. Wow. Interesting. I can, I can never see knocking this movie off just because of what it does for sequels and what, what it... What the, it does for sequels. Yeah. Do you need Mr. Coppola out here? Do you want him to get uh, high and talk to you about this? You know, but I mean, I think that he laid forward a lot of things with this first film as well. 
we see a lot of this done poorly. There's something about a movie that is this resonant in our culture. Like you would want people not to know the Fredo, the John Cazal performance that's in this. It's so amazing. I think that yes, I, uh, I could be okay with it. All right, all we right. We got him on here for the Deer Hunter. He's a good kid. I want, would not want the Deer Hunter on this list. Uh, that's <laughs> we're we're arguing over the Deer Hunter and this. It's a very easy, easy discussion. Well, Amy, uh, you and I may disagree on this one, uh, but I'll tell you um, that you may have uh, sixteen people who agree with you, and those are the sixteen people who also died in this movie. Uh, down from eighteen <laughs> in the first film, I did find this film to be actually less violent than the first film. Like, uh, it seems like the violence is on the side. That's why I said I don't feel like a mafia story. Like, yes, people are killed, but it it it. It's, it is very specific and very, you know, um, it doesn't feel like it's glorifying violence in any way. It's it's a it's a means to an end, and it's very used sparingly. But I guess sixteen times, I like guess not that sparingly. But um, <laughs> but I, I can't imagine that uh, there wasn't an abundance of clips for you to pick from The Simpsons. There was. Uh, this is a clip from a Simpsons episode called "Last Exit to Springfield," in which Homer becomes the head of the union and then hallucinates that he is Fenucci. This is your chance to get a fair shake for the working man. And make lifelong connections to the world of organized crime. Mmm, organized crime. Don Homer, I have baked a special donut just for you. Mmm, grazie. Don Homer, my son, he has a trouble with the. Uh... Eh, 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 eh. Molto bene. I think when you're thinking about that white suit on Fanucci, you're just thinking about Homer in that white suit <laughs> eating his donuts on the street. Let's be honest, I'm all the time thinking about white suits and men. I mean, but actually, actually, on that note, they tried to make a Godfather 3 right after this Godfather 2 came out, and they said, make Godfather 3, please, and let it star John Travolta. White suit what? to white suit. This is where my brain is. But yes, this is a true story. They said, we want John Travolta as Michael's son. And yes, it was an offer that Francis Ford Coppola refused. Well, it's interesting that this film was made by Paramount because I was interviewing the uh, the Zucker brothers who made Airplane. And Airplane was such a huge success that Paramount was like, you got to make a sequel. You guys have the you know the recipe to Coca-Cola. You got to make a sequel to Airplane. And they refused. And they said, well, we'll just make one without you. And they did, and that became Airplane 2. They were not involved in it at all. And they went off to make Top Secret instead of Airplane 2, which is, I think, an amazingly underrated film. Uh, But I thought it was interesting that Paramount was in this zone of, I mean, this is way later, obviously, but just like, no, it's successful, we're going to make it. And I bet you if Coppola did not make Godfather 2, someone would have made it a few years down the line. I mean, and you can also tell that this is Francis Ford Coppola not having any of the studio interference, getting to shoot in all these beautiful places. They're in Italy. They're in Cuba. You know, they are, they are, you can see the money and how much bigger this film is. The first film was such a small film, ultimately. Like, um, and yet they pushed it, you know, in, in different things. But this movie is giant. It is a giant, beautiful film. And then it comes to the Oscars 
And this movie kind of cleans up where the first movie doesn't necessarily clean up, right? It, like this one, it wins Best Picture, it wins Best Director, it wins a Best Supporting Actor, which is Robert De Niro. I wonder if it's like a Return of the King moment. Remember how we talked about this in Lord of the Rings, that Fellowship is the better film, maybe, and Fellowship is the one that's on the yeah. PFI list, but it's Return of the King that won all the awards because they're like, it's over now. And maybe at the time they're like, right, oh, there know. won't be another Godfather. We better award it while we can. Right, because, I mean, here it is, it is winning. Again, it's a screenplay, an art direction. Although it has to be said, The Godfather Part Two faced some pretty stiff competition at the Oscars from Francis Ford Coppola because he was also nominated for The Conversation for, I think, Best Screenplay and Best Picture. Which was an interesting thing because that was his movie that he used to take a break, you know, like to do something small and, and contained. And I love The Conversation. And that's an interesting conversation to have about if that belongs in this list. It's a, another great movie. Um, Would you get rid of Godfather 2? I don't think so. But, you know, now that you're saying this and talking about that year, this is also the year that Chinatown comes out. And I think in a weird way, the reason why you don't see an Oscar win for uh, for Al Pacino is because this is the year that Al Pacino is, play, is, is playing Michael Corleone in Godfather 2. Jack Nicholson is uh, Jake Geddes in Chinatown. Dustin Hoffman is Lenny Bruce in Lenny. Uh, and then you also have Albert Finney in Murder on the Orient Express. And Art Carney is Harry and Tonto. But Art Carney won. But I just think that, like, I think that Hoffman, Nicholson, and Pacino probably split the votes. And that's why you're getting Art Carney winning for Harry and Tonto. Not that that's a bad performance, no, but it's... Good for Art Carney. Uh, exactly. Take why it when not? You can. All right, great. All right, Amy. Um, I think we have said everything that needs to be said. And you know what? We're going from one family, the Corleones, to another family. Uh, next week as we dive into a, a literary great, which is The Grapes of Wrath. Um, I, you know, have been kind of pre-gaming our films and uh, a lot of similarities in in the bonds of family in these two films. So Very much. And also a sense of the power of unions for good and ill. Yeah. So um, what we want to hear from you is your best union experience. Best or worst union experience? How about that? Um, you know, what have you gotten because you've been a part of a larger bargaining agreement? Uh, have you benefited from that in any way? Uh, I want to know. I know I have. I'm in the Writers Guild. I'm in the Directors Guild. I'm in the uh, Actors Guild. And, uh, you know, you got to stand with your union. Uh, so give us a call at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. And let us know if unions are working for you or working against you. 